Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Kimberly Arkin, who teaches at Boston University, here to talk about her new book, Rhinestones, Religion, and the Republic, Fashioning Jewishness in France, out in 2014 from Stanford University Press. Kimberly, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So before we get into what you did to research the book, Tell us about the method of the cultural anthropologist. What do you do? What do you not do? So there are a lot of different methods in cultural anthropology. The short answer is we do what's called participant observation. It's a phrase that comes out of the work of Bronislav Malinowski, an anthropologist sort of at the turn of the the century, um, sort of in the, the teens and the 1920s, who claimed that he pioneered a new methodology, which was to go and live with people and learn the native language and do their daily routines with them and watch unimportant events like how they got dressed and really important events like ceremonies and not just do what sort of previous, they weren't necessarily anthropologists, but previous scientists interested in social phenomenon had done, which was interview people or do armchair anthropology, which is collect data from afar. So that's the the sort of short answer. The longer answer is it really depends on your research question. So the kinds of methods, I mean, so in general, all anthropologists do some version of this participant observation, going, being with people, getting to know them, spending a lot of time doing important and unimportant things with them. But specifically beyond that, the kinds of techniques you use, the spaces that you go to, how much you focus on sort of linguistic data, how much you focus on other kinds of data is really going to depend on the question that you ask. And so what did you do to research the book? You were a participant observer, is that right? And you lived in Paris? Tell us about that. Yes. So I was a participant observer. I lived in Paris. Urban ethnography, in contrast to the kind of ethnography that Bronislav Malinowski was doing in the 20s on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, is a little bit different in the sense that you don't necessarily live with the people who you're studying. So I lived in an apartment, but I, I worked every day in, I was going to three different um, Jewish day schools in Paris and in the Paris suburbs. And I went to all sorts of other places too. I went to synagogues, I went to community centers, I went to places where people were talking about Jewish identity, what it was like to be Jewish and French at the time. So I was a participant observer intensely in school settings and less intensely in other kinds of settings. Can you tell us a little bit about the three schools? So I can, um, although I can't tell you. um, So I I can talk about the schools. I also have to be careful what I say about the schools, because one of the things that we do in anthropology is we try to protect the identity of our informants. the Jewish schooling network in Paris and in France in general is a pretty small world. Um, and so giving detailed information about any institution would potentially reveal the identity of that institution to people who are in the know. 
So the book intentionally hides many of the details about the school. And so when I talk about them, I also do that. So what I can say is that they were part of two different schooling networks um, and schooling networks that had different kind of religious tendencies, one of which we might characterize as orthodox or ultra-orthodox, and the other we might characterize as sort of modern orthodox to conservative to modern orthodox. Um, and in very different kinds of geographical and social locations, so one in a relatively sort of middle-class neighborhood um, in a sort of good part of Paris, two others in much grittier, much more difficult neighborhoods in Paris. Um, and they, um, one of the schools was actually the, the modern Orthodox school was um, co-educational. The two other schools that were ultra-Orthodox were sex segregated. So one was for boys and one was for girls. And they were right. all K through 12 institutions. So what is the Jewish community of Paris uh, and of France more generally like? Can you tell us a little bit about um, the relationship also between the Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews? And what do you mean by that? Um, so the demography of French Jewry is pretty complicated, as is the profile of what it would mean to be a French Jew. It's an incredibly diverse population, like American Jews are an incredibly diverse population. The difference between, say, for example, the French Jewish population and the American Jewish population is that the vast majority of American Jews, although certainly not all American Jews, have roots somewhere in Central or Eastern Europe. Um, that used to be the case in France, actually roots either in France or what became France as a nation state, the sort of territorial boundaries of France, or in um, Central or Eastern Europe until um, starting in the 1950s and the 1960s, when um, with the beginning of French decolonization and the, the sort of fragilization of French rule in its colonial context in Northern Africa, so Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, you got waves of um, Jewish immigrants from those contexts. So starting in the, in the 1960s, about 1962, the, which was um, sort of the signing of the Evian Accords and the end of the Algerian War with France and the Declaration of Algerian Independence, when um, when uh, an enormous population of Algerian Jews, about 100,000, actually fled Algeria for France, sort of en masse at the same time, what you had was a major shift in demography. So you ended up with, you end up today with a French Jewish population that if you look at the origins of the population, most people come from, have parents or grandparents who come from someplace in North Africa, Tunisia, Morocco, Morocco or Algeria. Now what that means in terms of origins itself, it doesn't tell you very much necessarily about the religious profile of the people we're talking about, or even necessarily the class profile. There were significant differences in what it was like to be a Jew in Morocco and Tunisia versus Algeria. In Algeria, Jews had citizenship. In Morocco and Tunisia, they didn't. So that sort of tended to mean that Algerian Jews who ended up in France had a leg up, even though they might have lost many of their possessions when they were fleeing Algeria. They had a leg up in the fact that they had citizenship. They had um, they had, you know, diplomas and school certificates that were recognizable in the French system. If they were actually, you know, French civil servants, they could find jobs in the metropole very easily being sort of placed into similar kinds of positions. Um, so, you know, relatively quick class mobility for people who came from that kind of background in comparison with some Jews from Morocco and Tunisia, not saying that Jews from Morocco and Tunisia didn't have 
you know, upward, upwardly mobile trajectories. They did, but sometimes it was more complicated, particularly if they didn't already have citizenship or if they didn't have the same kinds of diplomas that were recognizable in a French setting. So an incredible amount of, of sort of class diversity that came with this group of people, also significant religious diversity that came with them. Um, so, you know, I don't want to sort of overplay the Ashkenazi-Sephardi divide. That would be problematic because there, there are continuities and discontinuities between the populations. But yet, at least in the representational imaginary of French Jews, starting in the 1960s and the 1970s, this was a significant cleavage. It meant something. It meant something about values. It meant something about public performance of Judaism. It meant something about um, sort of choices for futures of children. Um, so it, it represented something significant and actually continues to a lesser extent to represent some, something significant in French Jewish imaginaries. But, you know, over top of that divide and underneath it are all sorts of continuities and discontinuities between this group I'm calling Ashkenazi Central and European Jews and this group we're calling Sephardi, which, by the way, you could also call them Mizrahi. The use of the term Sephardi is actually sort of intentional by this group to reference an origin in Spain and an origin in Europe. Um, right. So there are all sorts of continuities and discontinuities between these sort of two imaginary classes of Jews. And so the North African background is still important even a generation or two after um, these Jews have come to France? So one of the things that I actually expected to find when I went to go do my research was that the North Africanness of these younger generations of Jews would be effaced because some of the work that people had been doing on the forms of religiosity among North African Jews you know, sort of in the 1980s and the 1990s in Paris, and there hadn't been a lot of work done on North African Jews. But what people were finding was that they were finding Ashkenazification, to use a sort of awkward word. And what that meant was that the forms of religiosity that people were adopting and the kinds of schooling that people were getting was rooted in sort of Central and Eastern European imaginaries of Jewishness. So the Lubavitchers, who had never managed to make inroads, with um, sort of most mainstream Ashkenazi Jews in France, all of a sudden, post 1960s, starting in the 1970s and the 1980s, are getting, you know, quote, quote, converts among North African Jews. So there was this sort of trend of saying, well, Arabness, North Africanness is a problem in France. Um, when people talk about Muslims, that becomes very obvious. And there's sort of a slippage between North Africa, Arab, and Muslim, right? People so sort of go seamlessly from one to the next, even though those things don't necessarily overlap with one another. So what was I expecting to find? I was expecting to find that sort of North African origins were being effaced and effaced in a variety of ways, including potentially in these religious ways where people were adopting forms of religiosity that might not have been common in North Africa, but were common in other contexts. But in fact, that's not necessarily what's happening, right? So that there, there is you know, these kids don't speak Arabic anymore. So I was working, obviously, with school-aged populations, um, you know, sort of young adults and adolescents, and they don't speak Arabic, but they pepper their speech with Arabic phrases that come, obviously, from their parents and from their grandparents. There's definitely the, the sort of culinary traditions have most assuredly been preserved. Um, and the among not so much the kids themselves who I was working with, because the kids themselves who I was working with, one of the things that was really interesting about them was that they had no idea 
that there was a different way of being Jewish than the way that they were Jewish, right? So it wasn't that they walked around with a sense of Sephardi-Ashkenazi divide because they'd never necessarily met people who would they, they would have thought of as Ashkenazi. They hadn't met people who lived Jewishness differently than they did, who had different kinds of origins or backgrounds than they did. Um, but that among adults who were much more aware of this sort of wider world of French Jewish discourse, the, there were constant jokes about intermarriage between Ashkenazim and Sephardim, right, about um, tensions, about the, the idea that Ashkenazim thought Sephardim were just, you know, sort of in quotes, Arabs. So that kind of stuff kind of lived on in these this uncomfortable kind of humor that people would offer up in various kinds of situations. So the kids were not necessarily aware of, it them, of themselves. But they were certainly not moving away from traditions that could be identified as North African. And the older generation was talked about this supposed sort of European North African divide as if it still had as if it was still sensitive and was endowed with cultural meaning. The phrase primordial identity appears a bit in the book. What do you mean by by that? What is primordial Jewish identity? So I think what I probably very awkwardly was trying to get at with that is one of the major arguments of the book. And one of the things that sort of led me to ask the questions I was asking was to try and figure out how it was that despite remaining attached to, you know, forms of dress, speech and practice that could be identified in some way as North African, um, the, the kids I was working with and the parents escaped being considered Arab and certainly escaped being considered Muslim. And so I was curious as to how that happened and how they negotiated that. And one of the things that I found was that in order to make the cultural similarities between North African Jewish practice and North African Muslim practice less significance um, and to mark the boundaries between the two populations, the the younger generation, so this generation of adolescents and young adults that I was working with, tended to turn Jewishness into something that functioned a bit like race. So in the sense that it wasn't so much about practice, it certainly wasn't necessarily about observance of divine command, um, that they were playing up, it, it's always existed historically in Judaism, the, the kind of genealogical, not necessarily racial, but the genealogical connection that makes people, the genealogical imaginary, I should say, that makes people Jewish. But that had become the centerpiece of the way they thought about Jewishness. And they thought about that transmission as having a sort of physical, physiognomic component that was readily visible um, that was independent of any practices that they might engage in, any clothes that they might wear, such that their Jewishness was readily apparent to anyone who might look at them. So, you know, a kind of a racialized understanding of where Jewishness came from, how it expressed itself, and how it produced groupness. So I think when I use that awkward phrase, that's the sort of complex notion of identity that I'm trying to talk about. The way the teenagers dress is really interesting. Um, what's going on in that chapter? And, and what is, is it Shalala? It's Shalala. 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 Um, which, by the way, nobody could actually define for me what Shalala meant or even necessarily where it came from. So that chapter is about um, 
the ways that these teenagers mark their Jewishness, right, how they sort of express their Jewishness, and the way they think about what they're doing. So that, that chapter explores the kinds of claims that they make with the clothing and accessories that they wear. So what kinds of brands do they buy? Why do they say they're buying those brands? What does that have to do with an imaginary of Jewishness? And then the sort of categorical mistakes they make in thinking about what it means to so mark themselves. So although they recognize that they're consciously choosing this mode of dress, they also simultaneously think that whether or not they mark themselves as Jewish in these ways, just as I said before, that that Jewishness is is sort of readily apparent and that they're constantly sort of tracking back and forth between this choice-based conception of how identity works and this sort of deeper intuition that it's not about choice actually at all. And so what that chapter tracks out is it tracks out the sort of ever-growing uncertainty that stems from that movement back and forth. So it says that if, you know, it, it, it talks about the ways that kids learn to read clothing as a mode of categorizing people, both themselves and other people, um, but that they don't even recognize that they're reading clothing, that they think they're reading something other than clothing. They think they're reading physiognomy. And when the physiognomy doesn't necessarily match up to or whether clothing doesn't necessarily match up to their presumptions about physiognomy or vice versa, um, the sort of spiral that sends people into and in, in, in sort of figuring out what the real is, right? What the real nature of the person who they're dealing with is. So this, you know, sort of, it's a chapter that deals with the problem of not knowing who people are in urban environments, the ways in which people cope with the fact that they don't know who people are in urban environments, and then the misreadings and misunderstandings and ever greater sort of levels of uncertainty that result from those modes of trying to manage uncertainty in the first place. Let's talk a little bit about what the students learn in the classroom. Uh, the chapter before the chapter on dress is about what students learn about Israel and Zionism. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that chapter. So what was really interesting to me um, in relation to these school settings was that you know, I talked about there, there were different school networks involved in my study. And one of that, one of those school networks was explicitly a, a Zionist school network. The other one was actually sort of a Zionist, people from the outside would call it anti-Zionist, um, kind of had uh, a sort of orthodox reserve in relation or ultra-orthodox reserve in relation to the modern state of Israel, right? Not so much Eretz Israel, but the idea of a post-1948 secular Israeli state. And so in one context, um, the connection with Israel, the modern state of Israel was played up really dramatically um, in terms of celebrations, in terms of the kind of artwork on the walls, in terms of the way, you know, sort of Israeli history was presented. In the other school, there were no celebrations of Israeli holidays. There were sort of no markers of modern Israeli state identity. Um, in, instead, there were, um, you know, sort of much more biblically grounded images of, of a kind of biblical Jewish state, not a contemporary state of Israel. And despite those differences in what was explicitly presented in terms of curriculum and programming in the schools, the students themselves didn't really have very different understandings of their own relationship to Israel and of Jewish, of, of their sense of what the Jewish relationship to Israel was like. And, you know, I was trying to figure out one of my questions was, how is that possible? Why, why is that the case? 
And there are lots of answers to that question. Um, and there are answers that are outside of school to that question in terms of family and, and, you know, sort of social media and all sorts of things like that. And I was trying to puzzle out the inside of the school piece, what was happening inside the school that allowed for a particular adolescent understanding that Israel, that Israeli society and their status as, as Jews was, how can I say this, that, that essentially Israel was already what they knew, right? It was Jewish life in France in their context transplanted into another place. So that there would be nothing that would be sort of foreign or unsettling or unknown about living as a as a French Jew in Israel, right? There would nothing be nothing that was French about their Jewishness. They would suddenly seamlessly be Israeli. And so I was sort of puzzling about how it it was that that happened. And um, what I talk about to some extent in that chapter is the way in which Israel was a blank canvas um, in all of these contexts, regardless of whether it was a Zionist or a sort of a Zionist or anti-Zionist kind of context that Israel was a kind of blank space, uh, a, a blank spot on the map. And what students were encouraged to do was project their own ways of being and seeing onto that blank space so that it felt like home, right? The home away from home or the real home when where they were in France was actually not quite a home. But what they were imagining in Israel was actually what they already knew to some extent in France. So sort of thinking about how that actually worked for kids um, because of, I mean, frankly, the incredible dearth of information in all of these contexts that was presented about Israel, historical or modern. Despite you know, all the hoopla, the kids knew nothing. They didn't know who the prime minister was. They, they couldn't have you know, located any of the other countries on, Israeli, on Israel's borders. I mean, they couldn't tell you anything about population demographics. They couldn't tell you anything about Israeli law. They really knew nothing. And the kids who actually visited Israel, and there were lots and lots of kids who would spend time in Israel with family, went to their family in French-speaking enclaves where they didn't have to speak Hebrew. And so literally everybody, in some sense, was like them because we're talking about family members, you know, extended family, cousins, grandparents, et cetera, et cetera. So the sense of Israel as being a mere extension of what they already knew was pretty easy in a sense to make either because you knew nothing because you'd never been there and you had no real information or because your whole experience of Israel was in this kind of limited vacation setting um, of familial kinds of relationships and experiences. So you conducted your fieldwork in 2004 um, and uh, recently it's been a very tumultuous time uh, for French Jews. Have you kept in touch with um, your contacts there and what is your sense of what has changed over the last 10 years? So that's a really good question. So I have kept in touch with some people. So as you know from reading the book that the adolescents who I worked with, I got thrown out of the school context in which I was working for some complicated reasons, um, having to do with the discomfort that Jewish schools had with uh, an idea that they weren't actually going to be able to control the presentation of um what I had experienced in the schools, particularly the idea that there, there was considerable racism among their students, anti-Arab racism at a time of, you know, increased anti-Semitism. The sort of party line was, you know, Jews aren't anti-Arab, Arabs are anti-Jewish, right? So it was, a, it was a, a kind of, it was a moment where the representation of Jewishness really mattered. It's still a moment when the representation of Jewishness really mattered and the schools were going to be uncomfortable with this kind of representation. 
So it was not, you know, I've kept in touch with a few students, but it became so uncomfortable after I had been kicked out of school. I was actually being threatened by one school director um, who, you know, claimed that I was still speaking to her students, which was not the case. It became so uncomfortable that I actually intentionally cut off all ties with all of the students who I had gotten to know, and I didn't rekindle those. So in terms of what happened to the specific people who I was talking to the most in this book, I don't actually know. Um, but in terms of the identity concerns that, you know, this this problem of thinking of Jewishness and Frenchness in the same breath and thinking about how you conjugate Jewishness with some notion of Israeliness or Zionist attachment and Frenchness, those problems haven't gone away. They have become, they've to some extent transformed in the sense that the, you know, the Charlie Hebdo attacks made it even more clear that in some sense, Jews, Jews were being attacked as Jews, but Jews were also being attacked, you know, sort of in the same vein as satirical Republican institutions. So the sort of political or cultural, I shouldn't say political, cultural rapprochement between Jews and some kind of notion of French republicanism that might be problematic has been exacerbated in some ways. So in some sense, you should think that should make Jews feel less lonely. I don't think it makes Jews feel less lonely. I think it actually has made them, as I document in the book, where these kids feel really lonely um, and really sort of terrified as Jews in France. I think in some ways, obviously, what's happened in the last 10 years has made that worse, not better. And it has extended beyond this adolescent milieu. So what people were saying to me in 2005 when I finished my fieldwork was that they were adults were saying, well, we've discovered from our children how bad this anti-Semitism problem is. We've discovered from our children, you know, sort of how precarious our existence was. We weren't really thinking of it in those terms. I think that sort of move beyond the, the adolescent, the, the sort of teenage on teenage tension and violence that was common in 2004 and 2005 has moved way beyond that. And, and so this has sort of moved out of an adolescent world much more into the sort of generalized Jewish population where there is this sense of being, whether rational or not, of being totally isolated and totally alone. Kimberly, it's time for the lightning round, as I call it. Uh, some quick questions and get your thoughts on a number of issues. Um, so what do you hope the impact of the book is? So, I mean, I think my major hope in terms of the impact of the book is to reframe the conversation about minorities in Europe and minorities in France. And so to take the sort of spotlight lens off of Muslims and the Muslim problem and sort of draw back a little bit and think about, in some sense, the national problem, right? What is what is it about national context in Europe um, and the European context more generally that produces forms of minority belonging that are that feel isolated and alienated, even under circumstances that may not seem to lend themselves to that. So thinking about Jews and Muslims both as as having a kind of relationship with one another, a necessary relationship, right, that started long before people came to France and has continued in France, right, it was part of the colonial context and has continued in France. So both thinking about that relationship and thinking about the ways in which forms of Jewish identity and Jewish belonging that are being produced in contemporary secular France resonate with the, the sort of forms of isolation, alienation, and anomie, you might call it, 
that people are talking about in the Muslim community so that it stops being a Muslim problem and it starts being a structural problem um, in, in the way people think about nationness and national belonging in certain European contexts, such that neither Jews nor Muslims can feel like they can belong. And so in another sense, I know I'm not doing this very lightning quick, but in another sense, what that does is it changes the conversation from, you know, the people who were thinking about Jews in relationship to Muslims. They were saying this is a story of succession, right? It was the story that Jews were the problem minority of the past. Muslims have become the problem minority of the present. And that's not the case either in the sense that Jews continue to live and experience themselves as a problem minority in France while Muslims obviously similarly are so designated and experience themselves in the same kind of way. And so thinking about that, thinking about that this is not, a you know, sort of a structural slot that was occupied by one group that then left and is now occupied by another group, but that this is a sort of larger relational problem among minorities within this kind of French national context. So, uh, Kimberly, if I'm at a cocktail party, uh, what tidbit can I use uh, from the book to impress someone? <laughs> I don't know that there's a cocktail tidbit to impress someone with from the book. That's an interesting question. I have no good answer to that. Okay, mine would be um, that in the early years of uh, France's conquest of Algeria, which I think was in the 1830s, uh, there was a French Jewish doctor who hatched a plan to, uh, in his mind, improve Algerian Jews. Uh, And that plan was to remove these Algerian Jewish children from their families, send them to Paris to be educated, and then they would be sent back to North Africa um, as healthy examples to be emulated. I thought that was uh, sort of disturbingly interesting because so, um, we know that. <laughs> go, go ahead. No, I mean, so there, there, the story of, you know, internal Jewish colonialism in North Africa is a disturbing story. And if there's something that, you know, that this book sort of adds to that disturbing story of internal Jewish colonialism, which is an old sort of story about civilizing the North African natives, right? A Jewish discourse about civilizing other Jews is that is the the sort of way that that story spills over after North African Jews come to France in in the 1950s and the 1960s, where that sort of same mentality continues to prevail, where the sort of Ashkenazi establishment thinks of itself precisely as that, as the sort of French establishment Ashkenazi Jews who need to tame, control, manage. Um, the forms of religiosity, identity, belonging of the sort of unwashed masses coming from North Africa. That's an old Jewish story, right? So that's a story that you can find in almost any Jewish context. You can find it in the United States. You can find it sort of all over the place. Um, And it's disturbing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Kimberly, we've taken a, a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share and what are you working on next? So, um, my next project is actually a continuation of asking similar kinds of questions. I'm thinking about the context in which identities that we think of as socialized or cultural identities get turned into non-social or cultural identities, get sort of transformed into to natural identities. And Jewishness is a small part of that story, but I'm sort of looking at you know general categories of race, sex, and sexuality and trying to figure out which bodies in which context and why are subject to this transformation. So the, the story that I told about you know, young Jews transforming a a conception of Jewishness into a sort of idea of natural belonging. I'm now looking at um, a much wider French national context and trying to see under what conditions, to whom and and why that sort of transformation is happening on a lot of different levels. So it's 
a continuation of the same question, but on a, on a much sort of larger, more abstract scale. Kimberly, that sounds like a great project. I, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The author is Kimberly Arkin. The book is Rhinestones, Religion, and the Republic, Fashioning Jewishness in France, published by Stanford University Press in 2014. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.